Good morning. It's a joy to meditate once again on the Word of God with you. And so I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. And today, just by way of clarification, we are not uh, continuing our series in the Psalms, Intimate, uh, Infinite Glory, Intimate Grace. Uh, we will be doing that as time goes on. We'll be re- revisiting uh, that series. But today, uh, we're actually continuing a series we began uh, last week called Life. This is a three-part series um, uh, so that we can meditate on three passages that I believe the Lord uh, led me to on my sabbatical. And I believe that the Lord would have us meditate together on these things. And namely, the question of whether you and I are living in a way that demonstrates that we know who the source of life is, namely God, of course. Uh, Are we living in a way that demonstrates that we know who and what life is really all about? And so this is the question uh, that is before us because the bottom line of our lives, according to Scripture, is that we are called to complete and undivided devotion to God. There's just simply no question about that. As we read Scripture, uh, we can know with confidence that that is our calling. And so last week we started with Deuteronomy 8.3 and we found that life is obedience. Life is all about obedience to God. And we learned that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. In other words, the Lord has... uh, made a covenant with us he's created a relationship with us and our part of that relationship is to do what he says and when we do what he says God gives us life we wrapped up last week with first John chapter 2 and in chapter 2 of first John we saw in verses 5 and 6 that whoever keeps his word that is the word of Christ in him truly the love of God is perfected And by this we may know that we are in Him. That is, here's how we can know that we are followers of Jesus Christ and that we are devoted to Him. Listen to what John says. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so you see, we're called to do as Christ did. Now, of course, we can't live a perfect life. We've already proven that, right? Uh, We are all sinners, and we're going to continue to sin and make mistakes. But our striving should be that we would imitate Christ. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This should be our way of life, to follow Jesus Christ and to do what he says. And what did he do? Uh, He did everything that God commanded him to do. And he also taught us what the greatest commandment is, that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I don't know about you, but that sounds like complete and undivided devotion to God. This is what we're called to. And so part one was all about obedience. It was about obedience to God, doing what God says. Today we're going to find that a major part of our obedience, a major part of doing what God says is to pray, intentional prayer, to spend time with the Lord. The Lord expects us to pray, and He commands us to pray. So we're going to see today that life is prayer. Life is all about prayer. 
Just as every word that comes from the mouth of God gives us life, so does prayer give us life. Prayer gives us life and nurtures our relationship with our God. It is vital to our relationship with God. Without prayer, I'm not so sure we can have a relationship with God. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at all this through the lens of King David's prayer in Psalm 3, uh, which is actually a celebration of a time, the darkest hour of his life when God answered his prayer. The big idea of Psalm 3 is the very last verse where David says salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, the victory is the Lord's. God always wins. He is the winner. He is never lost. And so as we meditate on that, we're going to focus on the fact that David prayed, first of all, and also that God heard his prayer. And we're going to find that prayer really is an essential part of our lives as believers. And so if we learn nothing else today, I hope that, that we walk away from here uh, more devoted to God through prayer. And I've got to tell you something. I've been praying that this would occur with all of us in this congregation. This has been on my heart for a long time, not only for me personally, but for all of us together, that we would learn to be devoted together to God in prayer. Because I think that that is going to have a huge impact on who we are as a fellowship, as a body of Christ, not only corporately, but also individually. And so as we, as we look at Psalm 3, I've got to tell you a little bit about why David wrote this psalm. Uh, the root of, of uh, this prayer that David is celebrating in Psalm 3 uh, actually uh, begins in 2 Samuel 11. The history that's behind this, this psalm is a long and sordid and sorry uh, tale that I'm surprised Hollywood hasn't made a movie of because it's got all the elements that Hollywood loves uh, to put in a movie and it would be such a graphic movie that I bet we wouldn't feel right going to see it. It's that awful of a story. And it begins, of course, with David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. David commits adultery and murder. He kills uh, Bathsheba's husband. And so David is guilty of two heinous sins, abominations in God's eyes. And so God says through the prophet Nathan, God says to David, Behold, I will ra raise up evil against you out of your own house. And it is a violent evil that costs the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so we see this evil rise up almost immediately in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Uh, one of David's sons, Amnon, has his way with his sister. A terrible, terrible sin in the eyes of God. And then uh, another brother, uh, another son of, of David, uh, Absalom's, or, uh, Amnon's half-brother, Absalom, is so enraged by what Amnon has done that he kills him. He commits murder. So like father, like son, right? And so David has tragedy upon tragedy heaped upon him in his life. And it all begins with his own sin. And so needless to say, David is of, of 
terrible calamities within his own family, but it doesn't stop there because then Absalom, over time, becomes jealous for the throne of David. And he decides he's going to steal that throne. He's going to take it from his father. And to do that, he's got to kill his father. And so after some time, he raises an army and he marches on Jerusalem against his father. And this is the prayer that David is celebrating in Psalm 3 that God answers for him right in the midst of his darkest hour. And so let me read Psalm 3 for us. And then we'll take a look at some more details of what's going on. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set them against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The word of the Lord. Well, I think most of us are familiar with the concept of a foxhole prayer. You can imagine World War I when the the Allies and the Axis are faced off against each other in the north of France and in uh, Belgium. And they're, they're hunkered down in trenches that stretch for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And there's heavy artillery coming in. There's a threat of gas attacks and, and just horrible methods that we humans have created to kill one another. And so as these soldiers are in their, in their trenches, in their foxholes to, to try to find some kind of protection from the danger, many soldiers would pray to God for the very... And they'd start making deals with God. God, if you get me out of this, then I'll quit smoking. You know, I'll, I'll even do one better. I'll live my whole life for you. Now many of those soldiers meant their prayers. Some of them didn't. They went home and forgot that they had prayed. But many of them prayed genuine prayers to God. And what we need to understand about David when he prays, he is in the darkest moment of his life. And this is a foxhole prayer. But here's the thing. The thing that we need to understand is uh, not only is he under this this great calamity that's occurring, Absalom is literally coming into Jerusalem while David is is leaving Jerusalem, fleeing over the Mount of Olives to the east to go off toward the Jordan River with his loyal followers. And so his son, uh, in in attacking him, it's just, it's it's the same thing as, as attacking God because David is God's anointed king. David is the one whom God appointed to the throne. And so for Absalom to be attacking his father is to be attacking God himself. And so that's why this is David's uh, 
probably the darkest moment in his life as his son is trying to, to do this thing, trying to kill him and take over from God, trying to defeat God. And so this is indeed a foxhole prayer. But it's not like David hadn't prayed before, right? David was a man after God's own heart. And part of that was the fact that he prayed constantly. He was always taking time to pray and to be with the Lord and to to fellowship with God and to to hear what God is saying to him. We see this uh, all through the Psalms that David wrote. David wrote about half of the Psalter, probably even more than that. And you see David's heart of prayer uh, as you go through the psalms that David wrote. And here are just a few of them. Psalm 4, verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. Psalm 6, 9, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 17, 6, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Psalm 27, 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. And on and on and on it goes. David was a man of prayer. And so it's no surprise at all. As his son is closing in on him, literally only about a hill away. He came that close to killing his father. It's no surprise that David turns to the Lord in prayer. This is an ordinary part of David's life, to be praying to his God. And so we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Absalom is right on his tail. And he's going east to, with his little followers to, to flee from Absalom. And as he goes, he's, he's weeping. He's, he, we, he was weeping as he went. He's barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him, uh, with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. All of this is a sign of the extreme grief that David is experiencing because his son is rebelling against God. And he's surrounded by loyal friends. Friends who are sharing in his grief and taking the risk of being his friend when there's a man coming with a large army who looks like he's going to win. And to be David's friend is literally a dangerous thing to be. See, this is the kind of friends we need, isn't it? We don't need fair-weather friends who run at the first sign of trouble, who run when we're having a hard time. We need friends who will stick by us through thick and thin. And we need to be that kind of friend as well. That's why God is a fellowship like this, is to be one another's friend through the good times and the bad, when we are in joy and when we're in mourning. And this is what David is experiencing. He is in deep mourning for his son. And he's got good friends around him who are mourning with him. And so as David goes with his friends, as he is nearing the top of the mountain, David gets some news that sounds like the last nail in his coffin. 
because in verse 31, someone told him, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is probably the best advisor that David has. Ahithophel is a very wise man, very strong counselor. He's full of fantastic uh, advice in times of crisis especially. And later on in in, uh, Samuel in the next chapter, it says that the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. That's how authoritative and correct Ahithophel was on a regular basis. And so for David to hear that his most trusted advisor has gone off to support his evil son would be something like our hearing during the Gulf War that General Norm Schwarzkopf had decided to go be with Saddam Hussein instead. This is devastating news. And it doesn't seem like that there is any way that David is going to get his throne back or that God is going to win. So what does David do? Well, we see that in the very next verse. While David was coming to the summit, uh, actually, I've gotten ahead of myself. What David did in uh, verse 31 is that he prayed. Is it prayed. And he says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is a prayer that that means that he really would like God to confuse Ahithophel or confuse Absalom as he listens to Ahithophel because he knows that Ahithophel is going to be a part of Absalom's inner council. And so he prays to the Lord, an impossible prayer, because Ahithophel knows what he's doing. And he knows that to defeat Ahithophel and Absalom, he needs the help of God. You see, he's turning to God from a standpoint of humility, knowing that he needs God's help. He's turning to the Lord. In in your Bible, Lord is in all capital letters. This is an indication that uh, David is praying to God using the special name that God gave himself, Yahweh. He is the great I am, the God who created all things, the God who chose his people. Israel, and the God who has chosen David to be the king. And so David is praying from a standpoint of humility. You are God, and I'm not. And Lord, I need your help now. I need it in spades. And so what does God do? He answers his prayer immediately in verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Hushai is another very trusted advisor, a very valuable friend to David, and he's proving to David that he is his friend because he's sharing in his grief. His cloak is torn, and he's covered uh, in this way as a demonstration of his grief. He's got dirt all over him on his head to show that he is grieving as well. And so David immediately recognizes that Hushai is the answer to his prayer. And David, uh, under the, the wisdom and counsel of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, sends Hushai back into Jerusalem so that he can pretend to be Absalom's friend. 
to be a spy at the very least in the inner council of Absalom and Ahithophel. And a very long story short, God uses Hushai to confound the wisdom of Ahithophel. And instead of listening to Ahithophel, Absalom listens to uh, some more conservative advice that Hushai gives him. And David wins in the end. Actually, God wins in the end. The Lord wins and David regains his throne. So what we need to recognize here is that when David prays in his darkest hour, this is a prayer of supreme confidence in God. You see, everything looked really bad for David. But David knew that the Lord would answer according to his wisdom, according to his will, according to his holiness, not according to anything about David. And so, verse 4, David cries aloud to the Lord, and, and God answers him from his holy hill, that is, on the Mount of Olives. And then in verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. You see, from the Mount of Olives, David goes with his loyal friends uh, to camp uh, that night near the Jordan River. And he goes to sleep. Would you be able to go to sleep when your son is hot on your tail wanting to kill you with a huge army? You are outnumbered many, many times over. You're disorganized. You know that if he comes after you, you are dead. Would you be able to go to sleep? I know I wouldn't. I know that I'm not alone when I say that I've spent many sleepless nights worrying over things, trying to pray, trying to trust that, that, that whatever happens, that, that God knows what he's doing, but failing in that, worried to death, worried over my health, worried over our children, worried over, over jobs, worried over so many things in life that overwhelm us. But David goes to sleep, <laughs> and that's because he's confident in God. He's confident because of what he says in the very last verse of Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God always wins. Can you point to a place in the Bible where God ever loses? He never does. And he never does in our lives either. You see, God is always victorious. And this is what David understood. He didn't know how it would happen, but he knew that it would happen, that God would win. And so I want to submit to you today that this is the kind of confidence that is the foundation for our prayers as well. Because God always wins. But you know, I think many of us have lost our confidence in that. Some of us have lost our confidence even that God will hear our prayers. Some of us even brush prayer aside because we say, well, you know, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he wants anyway, so there's really no need to pray. But I think most of us, for most of us, if we hesitate to pray, it's because we're not really sure that God is going to hear us. We're not really sure 
that God is going to win. And one of the reasons for that is that we have prayed mightily for things that we know are good that haven't happened. And so let me tell you a story from this morning. Leslie doesn't even know this. I'm driving into church this morning, and I'm on Springs Road, and I'm noticing, you know, there's a lot of deer out here this morning. So I literally, I prayed, Lord, protect me from these deer. And I'm not kidding, not more than two minutes later, I hit a deer. (laughs) I did. No damage to the car. Thank you, Lord. But I hit a deer. Does that mean God didn't hear my prayer? Does that mean that God lost? Absolutely not. I think I hit the deer so I could use this example this morning because every one of us can relate, right? Every single one of us can relate to that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't approach our God confidently in prayer. But here's here's another way how we lose our confidence to pray. We read passages like we find in, in James 1.6, which says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. And we misunderstand what's being said there, and so we start to think of faith as some, something that we can measure out like flour or salt or sugar or something. And so this morning, oh man, if I had only had five cups of faith, God would have heard my prayer, but I only had four and a half. And so I came up short. And so God didn't hear me. And God's God's perfect will wasn't done because I didn't have enough faith. We can go down that road so easily. But brothers and sisters, we either have confidence in God or we don't. The point of faith in God when we pray, of confidence in God when we pray, is about God. This isn't isn't about mustering up enough cups of faith. This is really a matter of whether we trust God with the outcome. Isn't that what David was doing? He was trusting God with the outcome. And so you see, I think this is maybe one of the main reasons why many of us don't pray or pray very little is we're not sure we can trust God with the outcome. It's just going to happen anyway. We become fatalistic. I heard a, a wonderful sermon by a pastor named Tom Pennington at a shepherd's conference I went to out in California at John MacArthur's church. This was five years ago. Fantastic uh, sermon on prayer and I'll share the link with you tomorrow in the Monday minutes but anyway he says that one of the reasons that we don't pray or pray very little is that past results don't justify future efforts to pray we've prayed to God mightily to be healed I know that I have but I still have a chronic illness (laughs) has God lost should I have less confidence in God because of that absolutely not And so if if we learn nothing else today from David's prayer, I hope that that we understand that God always wins. That God always wins because whether he answers in the way we want him to or not, he's always right. God is always right. 
And that's because he always answers our prayers in perfect harmony with who he is. And who is God? Well, for one, he is an all-knowing God. That means he knows everything that there is to know. We have an all-knowing God. We have a God who is perfect in his wisdom. We have a God who is perfect in his ability to do anything that he wants. And all of that, the foundation for all of that is his holiness. God is always right. God is always righteous. And so sometimes we find ourselves praying the same prayer for our whole lives, and rightly so if we're praying for something that is right and good. But we've got to trust God with the outcome. We've got to trust that God knows what he's doing. But you see, God always wins. There is never a circumstance in our lives where the devil is winning. God always wins. And so sometimes we go through trial as David did because God is disciplining us for our sin. And so our question becomes, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Change me. Change my heart. Bring me to repentance so that I can be more like you. Sometimes he's doing that in other people's lives. The point is, is that while we pray to God confidently, we don't always know what God is doing. And so to presume to know what God should do is a bit presumptuous on our part. But David prayed from a standpoint of humility. He wasn't absolutely positive that God wasn't going to remove him from the throne. But he still prayed confidently because he knew that God would win. And that's what was important to David, that God would win. And so we see this in 1 John chapter 5, the verses that Conrad shared with us just a little bit ago. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to believers for a reason. He's writing to them that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have when we go to God in prayer. That we have eternal life. It is a fact This isn't something that's subject to debate because Christ has come and He lived a perfect life and He died for us, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And then He rose again and He ascended into heaven. This is what guarantees that we have eternal life. And then our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in what God has done through His Son. And so this is the foundation for our prayers because look at what John says in the next verse. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It is a guarantee, brothers and sisters, that God hears our prayers if we belong to Jesus Christ. The only time an unbeliever's prayer is answered is when they're genuinely seeking after God. 
God does not hear the prayers of the unbeliever, but he hears the prayers of those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. This is an absolute guarantee that God hears our prayers. But how in the world can we know that for sure? How do we know that God hears us? Look at Romans 8, verses 34 and 35. This is what Paul says in Romans. He says that Christ is interceding for us. Here's how this works. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ rose bodily from, from this earth. He ascended into heaven. And I don't know how this works, but He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what is He doing? He's hearing our prayers and he's interceding with the father for us and through the ministry of the holy spirit this is the confidence with which we can pray and so therefore paul goes on in verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of christ Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? David understood that nothing could separate him from the love of God because God had promised to love him. And God always keeps his promises. And so just a couple verses later in Romans chapter 8, Paul answers his own question. No. Nothing can separate us. Listen to what he says. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor nor anything else in all of creation. You see, this is a complete list, isn't it? There is nothing anywhere that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we need any more confidence than that to go to God in prayer? Nothing can separate us from him. And brothers and sisters, that includes our own sin. When we turn to him in genuine repentance, if we continue in our sin, that comes between us and God. But when we repent, when we bow before him, and plead for his mercy in the same way that David does in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And what does he say? What does he base this mercy on? Himself? His own sorrow for his sin? Oh God, I'm really sorry, but after I pray this prayer, I'm going to keep on doing it. No. He is truly repentant. And he is depending on God Because look at what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so even when we sin and we bow before our maker in repentance, God hears our prayers and he forgives us and we are washed clean. You see, God is gracious and he gives us life the confidence that we go to our God with in prayer is based on what Christ has done for us and nothing else 
Now, even knowing this, a lot of us neglect prayer. We neglect it for all of the above because we lack confidence that God is going to hear us. We brush aside prayer because of God's sovereignty. But I want you to look at the example of Christ. On the screen, you see a list of of, uh, just a simple word search of the Gospel of Luke. And you have it in your bulletins as well, by the way. I printed it out for you. Uh, this is by no means an exhaustive list on the subject of prayer uh, and what, how Jesus spoke about it and taught about it, but it gives you an idea, it gives you the gist of how important prayer should be in our own lives because Jesus not only set the example for us to pray, but he commands us to do the same thing. He expects us to pray. He expects us to set aside time to pray, time to fellowship with God because prayer is our expression of our relationship with God it's how God speaks to us and moves in our hearts in addition to the word of God and so in Luke chapter 3 we see that uh, Jesus prays after he's baptized and then in Luke chapter 5 we see that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray This was a habit of his. This wasn't a one-time thing. He would go away. He would separate himself from all of his followers, including the disciples, and he would go away someplace by himself so he and his father could commune together and fellowship together. And this is the example that he has set for us. You know, a lot of us, we rightly say, well, you know, I pray without ceasing. I pray all day long while I'm doing the dishes, while I'm at work, while I'm um, driving, while I'm doing this or that. I'm praying all the time. And, and so really what we're saying is we're trying to multitask while we pray. Now this is a good thing to do. We should do this. We should, as things come to mind, we should pray for them. But Jesus went off by himself and made a point to spend time with the Lord. We should do the same thing. I'll share a, an extreme example of that with you. Uh, there is a, uh, a minister from the 1800s whose name was E.M. Bounds. And he would get up at 4 a.m. every single day, no matter what was going on in his life, and he would pray for three hours until 7 a.m. He did this without fail, no matter where he was. Now, God isn't prescribing a set amount of time for us, but what Jesus is saying is that we need to set aside intentional time with the Lord in prayer. And this goes hand in hand with our reading of our Bibles so that we can know what God has said. So this is the example of Christ, that we set aside time with our Father. And so and then in uh, Luke chapter 6, Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray. Again, another example of his setting aside time with the Lord. And then uh, in the same verse, all night he continued in prayer to God, all night long. So instead of spending all night just worrying and fretting and trying to come up with our own solutions, from time to time it would behoove us to pray all night long, Right? And then he gives us a teaching about prayer. He says, pray for those who abuse you. This is a command to pray based on the expectation that prayer is a part of our lives anyway. This is one of the things that we should be praying for.
And then in Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked the Lord to teach them to pray, teach, teach them how to pray. How do we do this, Lord? How should we pray? This is one of two times that, that uh, this teaching is, is taught. They were taught at two separate times. That's why the, the uh, 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 version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew is a little different from the one in Luke. They're just two different occasions. But the Lord teaches them how to pray. We know this is the Lord's Prayer, of course. It should be a template for our prayer, uh, but not something that we recite dryly. Uh, it should be uh, the example for our prayer. Half of the Lord's Prayer is about God, and half of it is about us. We tend to forget the half about God. But at any rate, when Jesus begins his teaching of the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray. Again, this is an expectation on his part that prayer is a part of our lives. And then in Luke 19, he uh, cleanses the temple. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And that speaks to us when we come together, doesn't it? We should be people who pray together. We should be people who lift one another up to the Lord. And on and on and on it goes. The Lord teaches about prayer. He sets the example for prayer. And he even prays while he's dying on the cross for us. And so you see, this is the Lord's expectation of us. That we pray. That we make prayer a regular part of our lives. Prayer simply is not an option for the believer, brothers and sisters. Really, uh, it should be uh, just like the reflex of breathing. We can't help but to breathe. If we truly love the Lord, then we're going to spend time in prayer. We will pray in direct, direct relation to how much we love the Lord. That's just the way it goes. The uh, English Puritan Thomas Watson put it like this. He said, prayer is the soul's breathing. What breathing is to the body, praying is to the soul. We absolutely cannot survive without it. And so why in the world do some of us try to go through this life suffocating our souls through a lack of prayer? We should turn to the Lord with great confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And we need to understand that last week's teaching about uh, man living on every word that comes from the mouth of God goes hand in hand with the Lord's teaching on prayer. The word of God and prayer are not like peanut butter and jelly. You can have peanut butter by itself and you can have jelly by itself. I used to have an uncle uh, who would eat jelly by the spoonful. But what God is saying to us is that the word and prayer are like water is wet. Have you ever found dry water? I never have. Our lives should be soaked with both the word of God and with time with our Lord in prayer. And when we go to him, we should go to him confidently because of what he has done for us. And so my prayer, quite literally, is that we as a church will experience a revival in prayer. That we will remember that we need to spend time with him and that our lives depend on that time with him.
We should teach the word. We should preach the word and receive it and proclaim it. But we also need to spend time with our God. And so we need to lift up prayers to him confidently because we are saved, because we know that we have eternal life. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you that you have demonstrated grace to us in the same way that you demonstrated it to David and that you hear our prayers. Father, we would ask that you would forgive us for not spending perhaps the time that we ought to. Lord, we thank you for those in our midst who do. We thank you, Lord, for those whom we call prayer warriors who are among us, who lift us up uh, on a daily basis. But Father, we ask your forgiveness for misunderstanding what that means, as if prayer warrior means there are some people you've gifted to pray and others who you have not. Lord, help us to understand that we are all prayers, that because you have loved us and because we love you back, we want to spend time with you and receive the grace that you have for us through prayer and receive the blessings that you have for us through this gift of being able to spend time with you, a gift that is available to every one of us who has been washed clean by the blood of your Son. And so, Father, convict us, convict us, and draw us near to you through prayer. For we pray in the name of our blessed Savior, amen and amen.